Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In some ways, the story of the pandemic has been a story with longevity right at its core. How do you help people live as long as possible? When are you being too cavalier with people's health? What restrictions on controlling the coronavirus exact too high a toll on people's ability to feed their families? The question of longevity is everywhere, and it's used by people who restrict activity and by those who ease those same restrictions. But that isn't just true when you're dealing with a pandemic. The question of how to extend our lives sits beneath many, many policies. So a lot of factors contribute to life expectancy, either positively or negatively. Jennifer Karis Montez co-directs the Policy, Place, and Population Health Lab at Syracuse University, and she's a professor of sociology. So increases in standard of living, increases in educational attainment in the population, better health care, for example, safer housing. So there are just a myriad of factors that have gone into these you know, long-term improvements in how long we live in the U.S. Montez is the lead author of a major study looking at how individual states impact our life expectancy. And indeed, differences at the state level can be profound. Montez's report notes that in 2017, life expectancy ranged from almost 75 years in West Virginia to almost 82 years in Hawaii. That's a huge gap. That means that West Virginia's life expectancy is below that of Vietnam, Tunisia, Morocco. And these are countries that are much poorer than the U.S. And the gap was not always that yawning. Montez points to two states that tell an interesting story. Connecticut, and Oklahoma. So if we go back to 1959, let's say, those two states had the same exact life expectancy. I think it was like 71.1 years. They were the same. But over time, Connecticut made really substantial gains. So they're now in the top five of states in life expectancy. They've gained almost 10 years um, over that period of time. But uh, Oklahoma, on the other hand, just really plateaued out and has made few gains since 1980, and they're now in the bottom five of states. So then, back in 1959, people living in Connecticut and Oklahoma could expect, on average, to live to 71. About 60 years later, residents of Connecticut had bumped up that number by about 10 years, but residents of Oklahoma had only seen their lifespans increase by five years it kind of debunks a popular way of thinking about state trends and life expectancy, which is states that are doing well have always done well, and states that were doing poorly have always done poorly, but we're just seeing an exaggerated trend these days. And that's not actually the whole story. When we dig in and we look at these individual states, we see that they've just taken on very different trajectories. Montez says... That's because policy decisions at the state level matter a lot. In part, she argues, that's because in the 1980s, under President Reagan, states started to get less guidance and fewer requirements about where to spend their money. They got lots of block grants, which gave them more discretion with the cash. And states made very different choices. 
Another trend we've seen that impacts longevity is a policymaking tool. It's called preemption, and it allows a state to override the decision of a city or a county government. When a state sets its minimum wage, that is preemption, right? A state is saying localities, you can't have a minimum wage below the state level, right? So, so they are taking away local authority. But what started happening with this new era of preemption in recent decades is that states started taking away cities and counties' authorities to, to do things that would improve the economic well-being and health of their residents. So now states are saying, cities and counties, you can't raise the minimum wage higher than what I say it is at the state level. So it's put this cap on or a ceiling on what cities and counties can do to improve the lives and, and health of their residents. Jennifer Karis Montez and her colleagues looked at well over a hundred different kinds of policies to see what moves the needle. And she says there's just a few policies that seem to be particularly important when it comes to helping people live longer. At first blush, they may all seem like they're from one side of the political aisle, but stay tuned, it's a little more complicated. So anyway, what are the policies that matter? Those are policies on labor, so things like minimum wage, paid leave, policies on the environment, so things like car emission standards, um, solar tax credits, policies on immigration, which may seem a little weird to talk about immigration when we're talking about U.S. states, but states do implement policies that are related to immigration, so things like driver's license for undocumented persons or in-state tuition for undocumented persons, policies on civil rights and policy on tobacco. These seem to be really important. In addition, we also find there are, there are a little, few other policies that are important, but, but mainly for women, and that's policies on abortion and guns. So some of those seem very clear-cut. Tobacco, for example, we know that smoking contributes to shortening your life. And so if you don't smoke and, and maybe the price of cigarettes are really high in your state, so you don't buy them because you can't, uh, then that would be positive. When you talk about labor, um, you know, like having a high minimum wage um, or paid sick leave, I mean, what's the difference between, you know, having a $13 minimum wage and an $11 minimum wage in terms of how long you live? So this is a really important point. I mean, you're, you're exactly right that some policies, that it's really easy to see how they would shape how long you live. I mean, tobacco policy is, is a great example there. And some policies, it's it's not so clear, partly because there's just not been a lot of work done to identify all of the different pathways through any given policy might shape health. But there, the work that has been done shows us that the, those pathways are really complex and, and work in ways that, that we don't anticipate. And so, so I'll, I'll just take minimum wage policy, for example. So why does minimum wage policy shape our risk of death? Well, for starters, a higher minimum wage shapes your risk of being born at low birth weight because it shapes your mother's, um, especially a low-educated mother, it shapes her levels of economic distress, which in turn shapes things like health behaviors, coping health behaviors like smoking. A higher minimum wage reduces teenage pregnancy. It reduces women's obesity risk. It reduces working age adults' risk of dying from cardiovascular disease. 
So just taking a policy like minimum wage, which we think, well, that's just about putting money in our pockets. Oh, no, no, no. On the contrary, minimum wage has these effects that occur like from birth and all the way through the lifespan. And I mentioned minimum wage because you know it's one of the most heavily studied of all of these policies. But I'd imagine if we were to give all the other policies as much attention as we have minimum wage, we'd find th- similar things, that the ways that a policy shapes how long we live are varied and unanticipated. Let me ask about a couple other ones. Um, you know, the issues of like reproductive rights. Um, obviously, there are strong uh, feelings about that. But again, the degree to which it shapes longevity, you know, whether you live to 73 or 76. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, so there has recently, it's a really great study, it's called the the Turnaway Study, that has been able to follow women who sought out abortions and for whatever reason, some were turned away, maybe they were, you know, past the, um, you know, the state's cutoff date, and compare their outcomes to women who, who weren't turned away. And what they find is that the women who were turned away have a higher risk of developing mental health problems, a higher risk of poverty, a higher risk of being abused by the man who was um, the the biological father. And so there's this kind of like domino effect of social and economic and health outcomes that can result from being denied um, reproductive rights. So we talked before about Connecticut versus Oklahoma and how they diverged in terms of life expectancy. Uh, But as you mentioned, there's also Hawaii and West Virginia. They're right at the ends of the spectrum, one in 50 in terms of Hawaii having the longest life expectancy and and West Virginia having the shortest life expectancy of all the states. I think when people hear that, they're going to think, well, I mean, have you looked at real estate in Hawaii? It's really, really expensive. And so... Aren't we, don't we just keep coming back to rich people do better than, than states where there's just a lot poorer people? Right. So, so a couple of things to keep in mind. I mean, I, I certainly understand why we would reach that conclusion, but, but here are a couple of things to consider. Hawaii wasn't always number one. So at the start of our trends, Kansas was number one. Okay. Now, Kansas doesn't strike us as being a particularly, you know, sunny place with lots of palm trees and lots of rich people. So there was something about the environment in, in Kansas that made it um, the longest lived state in the country, not Hawaii. And, you know, but over time now, Kansas is like in, in the middle of the pack. Okay. So a lot, a lot of downward movement in Kansas. So that's starting back about 1960. Kansas was number one. Yeah. Kansas was number one. Okay. Okay. The other thing to think about... But when we're talking about, well, you know, this state lives longer than that state because let's just take Minnesota and Mississippi, for example. So one of the, the questions that I get when I, when I talk about this work is, well, of course, Minnesota, people in Minnesota live longer because they have higher levels of education. They, they have a higher median income. They have a higher percentage of the population who are non-Hispanic whites. And we know non-Hispanic whites have a pretty long life expectancy. So, of course, those are the reasons why people mm-hmm. in Minnesota live longer than people in Mississippi. To which I say, well, why do you think it is that people in Minnesota have higher levels of life expectancy and a higher median household income? 
let's look at all of the things that um, the state of Minnesota does to ensure that that happens. The way that they invest in public schooling, the way that they finance their public schooling system, their higher minimum wage, their earned income tax credit, the fact that they participate in Medicaid expansion. So we could go through, you know, there's a reason why people in Minnesota have higher levels of education, higher income. And, you know, it's not entirely driven by the state, but the state has plays a large role there. Um, is it possible that uh, since minority populations in the U.S. generally do not have the same um, opportunities that the majority population does, that states with the, with the largest minority populations have a lower life expectancy? Have you found that to be true? Oh, absolutely. Lower life expectancy and worse measures of health, higher levels of disability, and so, but, but what's important here, I'm glad you brought that up, what's important here is that, so if we were to take a state like Mississippi and we were to look at, I'll just use the work that, that I know best, it's work that I've done on disability and just said, okay. you know, how, how do white and black adults in, in Mississippi compare to white and black adults in, in Minnesota in terms of disability? Well, no matter your, your, your race, if you live in Minnesota, you're going to do better. But if you look at Mississippi, white adults do worse there too, because it's, it's not, so, so Mississippi does worse, not just because they have populations that, you know, are economically marginalized, experience, you know, racism, discrimination. It is also because the state, the things that the state does or does not do have effects on everybody who lives there, but those effects are most pronounced, they're most consequential for low-income people and persons of color. Can you, we've talked a lot about differences between states. Can you situate the U.S., um, and you can break it down a little bit by state, but I'm interested in terms of like how we fit into overall, you know, wealthy and industrialized countries where we stand in terms of life expectancy. Yeah, how, how you would compare us to places we think of ourselves as, as being similar to potentially. Right. So, so the U.S., we're generally... In recent years, we're generally about 44th in the world. We stack ourselves up against um, all other countries in terms of life expectancy. The latest 44th projection doesn't sound that good. No, does it, how does no, it, it doesn't. It's it's okay. it's embarrassing, but it's projected to get worse. So, so the latest projections that came out uh, within the, the the year or so is that the U.S. is expected to fall in that ranking more than any other high-income country to be 64th in the world in the near future. So the trajectory is, is not a good one. Now, going back to the issue of states, mm -hmm. the states differ so much. So let's take Mississippi. Mississippi is ranked around 93rd in the world. If, if Mississippi were a country, it would be ranked around 93rd. Okay, so this is a state life expectancy similar to Honduras, for example. Hawaii, on the other hand, is within about 0.7 years in terms of life expectancy of world leaders, like Sweden, for example. So we do have some states that are performing pretty well right there at the top. Um, but we have a bottom, a bottom set of states in the U.S. that are a really heavy anchor States like 
Mississippi and Oklahoma that have been a real a real drag on life expectancy and and just have not increased very much at all since the 80s and have more recently experienced even more dramatic declines in life expectancy than, than the US overall. So I think this is really important, you know, because I mean, I'm actually not a big fan of reporting US life expectancy because the country like the country is so diverse. When we have a 7-year difference in life expectancy between you know, the highest and lowest state, what does it mean to talk about U.S. life expectancy? So as we've talked about these policies and these states, uh, I mean, a lot of the states that uh, are at the bottom in terms of life expectancy, West Virginia, Mississippi, these tend to be more Republican states. And, and many of the states, Hawaii, Connecticut, who are uh, have at the top of the life expectancy tend to be more Democratic states. Um are there any conservative policies that you feel like are positive for extending longevity or liberal policies that you think, you know, but here, you know, many are good, but here's one that really is maybe not so good with extending life expectancy? So I think, you know, so far our clearest evidence for the benefits of a conservative policy points to marijuana. But we also find in this new set analysis where we're breaking out these specific causes of death, that there are some policies that didn't show up to be important at all when we look at life expectancy, but may have an effect on on specific causes. And here's an example, Uh, criminal justice policy. We did not find that it was related to overall life expectancy, but we do find that a more conservative version of criminal justice policies um, is associated with a reduced risk of drug overdose deaths. Do you think that states or people who live in states are aware of the power that the policies of that particular state, not even national policies, because I think a lot of people think, oh, well, all the power is in, is in Washington. Do you think that people are aware of the downstream power of their policies at the state level? I don't. I'll give you a little story. My uh, collaborators and I started on this this area of work six or so years ago. And, you know, we had kind of a sneaking suspicion that things going on at at the state level were contributing to, you know, this overall worrisome trend in U.S. life expectancy. And we we submitted a grant to the National Institutes of Health. We started um, doing empirical analyses, submitting them to journals. And we had a really hard time breaking through. We were told by reviewers, states don't matter. Why are you focusing on states? You know, the neighborhood is important or U.S. policy is important, but states not so much. And we kept doing the work anyway because we really believed that there was something there, that state policies do in fact matter quite a, quite a lot. And we've been able to generate a lot of evidence to support that. But I think, you know, in the last year, because of COVID, I, I do think by now there's a much greater appreciation among both researchers and the public that states matter a lot. You know, there, there really is, has been no national response to COVID. It is very state-specific. And I think that the last year really opened a lot of people's eyes. You know, 
preemption came to the forefront. Preemption, you know, became almost a topic of, you know, dinner conversation. You know, what is this preemption? You know, how can it be that, you know, the, the governor of Georgia can, you know, overrule what cities and counties are trying to do with mask mandates? You know, what, what is right, this right, all right. about? And so, so I do think that that's one of the more interesting things that has come out of the last year is that I, I, I do think that there is much greater appreciation now that states are so important. I, I mean, I think it's interesting because I do think all the so much of the attention I feel like in recent years has been on, you know, the Affordable Care Act and our, you know, our is it going to get overturned? I mean, the, the the attention on what the national policy is, who's going to be on the Supreme Court and how is that going to affect reproductive rights? Now, obviously, all those things are really important, but I think people often think, well, whatever, states just have to deal with what the, the feds decide. That's right. And in fact, that is partly what led to states being so so different and being the, you know, the battleground of, of policymaking in the last 40 years or so, because as sociologists and political scientists have documented that this movement, you know, whether it's devolution or, or preemption or, or through other mechanisms, this movement to change the U.S. policy environment was very intentionally targeted to the state level because the People who wanted to make those changes, corporations, wealthy donors, they knew that people just don't really pay attention to state politics, right? They, they could make these changes under the radar. It's much easier to change the U.S. policy environment if you go after one state at a time. Because even if you're only 50% successful, you've still changed half of the states, right? Which they calculated, well, that's much better than trying to get this new policy environment pushed through at a national level where there's a lot of attention on it. And if we fail, then we, we fail miserably. So let's just accumulate one, one success at a time. And, and they, they've done it. <laughs> Jennifer Karras Montez is a professor of sociology at Syracuse University. She's the author of our recent report on U.S. state policies and their impact. We will link to it at our website, innovationhub.org. Jennifer, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Kara. As I noted, we've got Jennifer's whole study looking at every state and how life expectancy has changed over time and what policies have driven that change at innovationhub.org. While you're there, you can also subscribe to our newsletter. It's very short, comes just once a week with a preview of the show, as well as a reading or a viewing or a listening recommendation from me or one of our producers. Thanks to everyone who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, and associate producer Sarah Leeson. We also had production help from Hannah Kiros. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. <laughs>